0: Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Titus 3, 1 through 15. In this uh, morning text, we're going to be finishing up our study in the book of Titus. Um, just to kind of warn you beforehand, um, I'm coughing a good bit. I believe I have a sinus infection of sorts. Um, I think um, Thursday we finished up soccer, and it was about... 35 degrees outside, and then Friday, Tanaya and I went to the Caledonia football game to watch them win, and uh, it was about 35 degrees out there as well, and so my voice have not been that great, so I enjoyed the new songs this morning, though I did not sing a single one of them, because I knew I had to get up here and do this, and so we'll see if I even get to finish that out. But this morning, um, as we kind of finish up Titus 3, um, we're really, Paul is putting Almost a bow on this letter to this individual that's placed over these churches, but also just to these churches as a whole. And so, within this, what we're going to see is really so far what we've seen in Titus. I know the very first sermon, I looked at just kind of the background of Titus as a whole, and then Troy picked up and he started looking at verse 5 through the end of the chapter of chapter 1. And what he saw was really these qualifications for elders um, and really just this way of combating and and pushing against false teachers that have infiltrated the church setting. And so really the specific uh, instructions to Titus to make sure that those you're putting in the role of elders would be qualified based on these qualifications. Right. And then last week we looked at chapter two. And in chapter 2, we really just saw this importance of teaching sound teaching uh, and sound doctrine. And in that, Paul gives this specific charge to Titus to really teach the church to live a particular way. And living a particular particular way uh, was kind of separated by male and female. That older men would live this way, and in doing this, would teach younger men to live in this way also. Then, older women would live in this way and teach and develop younger women to live in this way. So, though it was kind of addressing the church as a whole, it was still segmented. And then, even after that, he goes and he talks to those within the church that are bond servants or slaves, and he tells them how to live a very specific kind of life. Why? So that the gospel would be made known to their slave owners. Okay? And then this morning, it kind of puts this bow on the chapter as a whole because when he writes these final final instructions, he's not splitting up by elders or by church members. He's not splitting up by male or female, old or young, free or slave. He's not splitting it up in any of those ways, but rather he's writing to the church as a whole. And he's going to end with this final charge of how to live but not only how to live, but why they are to live that way. And in living that way, why they should avoid, uh, avoid foolish talk per se. And then when you look at 12 through 15, I'm going to read that now. We're going to read it as a whole in just a moment. I'm going to read that now because I'm not going to say a lot about it, okay? It says this, When I send this and Tychius to you, do your best to continue to me. At Nic- Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer in Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Right, I'm going to pause there. Paul's ending this book with really two specific charges. He says, when these people get to you, you now leave and come back to me. So Paul's overseeing this mission organization, essentially. He says, look, when these two guys get to you, you come back to me. When you've completed the job that I've left you in Crate to do, come back to me. But he's also saying, send these other two guys, Zenos and Apollos, on their way so that they can do what is next for them. And then verse 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you. Paul, in verse 14, he sums up this entire book and the reason why he left Titus here in Crete, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul ends it this way because I think he understood the world he lived in would require some urgency from time to time. And I'm going to look at that specifically in verses one through two. I wanted to start here though because this is really his final words to Titus as he is ending this letter. Um, it's that P.S. statement that we may would make if you ever have written letters. Um, some of you are probably not old enough to write letters. Some of you probably maybe did in high school and things of that nature. But the reality here, he's ending with that P.S. here. And he's saying, look, this is it. This is it. Send these people to me. Send these other guys on the way. And let's be in prayer that our people will learn how to be people of good works. Why? So that they could live an urgent life. Okay? So, with that being said, let's look at the first 11 verses together. I'm going to read it all. (coughs) Maybe. And I'm going to read all... I'm going to stop at verse 11. It says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days to make an envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people in verse 9 but avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing More to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you. God, my prayer now as we approach this last chapter in Titus, that Father, as it's speaking to everyone in this room, not not to elders and not to older, not to younger, not to free, not to to enslaved, but Father to everyone that is a believer that have ever trusted in your son. And so, Father, as we approach this text, God, let the gospel scream out to us. The, God, the, the reality of who we have placed our faith in motivate us. And, God, as we live here, we would be people that would live lives of urgency. We love you and we thank you in your son's holy name. Amen. So, in this, we're really going to look at it in three sections, okay? We're going to look at it in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to jump from 3 through 8, and then 9 through 11. And we've already looked at 12 through 15. And what we're going to look at this is really, first and foremost, that we're called to submit to authorities and to live with non believers. I'm going to pause there, is both of those two things is what Christians in our day and age. Seem to fail to do so often. The second thing we're going to see is the reason why we do this. And just to put very plainly, as of right now, we were once but God. Okay? The reason why we do these things is because we were once but God. And then in 9 through 11, we're going to say that in doing so, we would also avoid foolish talk. We're going to look at that in more in depth in just a moment. But in all of this, he's talking, as I've already said, to this congregation of people, to all groups of people in the congregation, and he's giving these specific charges to kind of end it out with. Um, Let's just start in verse 1. He says, remind them. Actually, let's look at verse 15. I didn't read this a moment ago, but if your Bible has paragraph breaks, this verse 15 would kind of fall into the same paragraph as chapter 1. It says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So verse 15 is what we looked at last week. It's really just to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let them not have any disregard towards him. Why? So that they would listen to what it meant to live out the Christian faith as older and younger believers. Okay? But this morning, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, we're going to get to the all people in just a moment. But we're going to pause here. Because this is difficult. This is a difficult aspect of Christianity that I believe has um, really divided many people and churches today. The reality of it all is that in the last two years we've lived, In this place of, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Do you get vaccinated? Do you not get vaccinated? Do you try religious exemption to avoid vaccination? Or do you just comply? Do you maintain your job that requires these things? Or do you leave your job that may require these things? Do you hang out with people that disagree with you in this regard or another? We live in a a governmental society that is most likely going to vote in, in the next few days, a new budget that will include a governmental paying for abortions. So what do we do in circumstances like that? How do we handle these situations? Do, how do we respond to media and governmental overreach or governmental underreach, whatever it may be for us? How do these things apply? See, when you read these first few statements, it just says submissive to rulers and authorities. And that, that's an open-ended thing. When I look throughout this room, many of us have rulers and many of us have authorities that are not necessarily governmental figures. For example, Nick has a job at Max um, Shan Lumber, and he has bosses, Right? He's got specific bosses at specific areas, and the higher they go up, the higher there may be. And then from there, we also see that, like I myself, I have a postmaster, I have a district manager, I have uh, a regional manager, I have a all the way up to a postmaster general. Okay, there's a ton of authority here. But not only that, but we also see that. In just society, you have state governments, you have federal government. There's a, a lot of areas to this that who is the submissive to rulers and authorities? And I would argue it's just people that are over us in general, whoever that may be. So how do we do this well? Do we set up boundaries that would prevent us from supporting one thing or another? Do we quit paying taxes so that we're not supporting some kind of abortion ring or whatever the case may be? I would say this. That in the picture of submitting to authority and rulers in specific areas of our life is so nuanced that it's hard to stand in front of you and say that you should do this, this, or this, and that. For example, um, I'm going to speak to your guys' life for a moment. About six weeks ago, the Air Force was passed down a mandate that they would either get vaccinated or they had so many days to fill out a religious exemption. Okay? What does somebody do in that moment? Do they submit to authority or do they try to go the religious exemption? Every situation in that is a case-by-case thing. You can't stand in front of a crowd of people and say, you must do this, you must do that. And so what I would say is that in life, there are circumstances that are more difficult to convey than others. And so that you seek godly counsel to see how you should live these things out. But I would say this just plain and Clearly is that Paul is writing this letter to Titus to the, that was living in the Crete region, and that region was occupied and ran by Rome. And what I would argue about Rome is that Rome was in a lot more of a godless state than the United States of America is now. That even Christ, when questioned by the Pharisees and Sadducees, was asked the question, do, do I pay taxes or not? His response is, whose face is on that coin? And, but then you also see where there's moments in Scripture where people go against the law. Paul certainly does this as he has been arrested multiple times, and he is now out and free and going to be arrested again. Why? For preaching the gospel. So there's a, a balance here in life of doing what is right and doing what is wrong for the sake of the gospel. Where does that balance lie? I think it lies on the individual and having godly counsel that speaks into their life. Now, all of that being said, he says to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. When I look on social media, these are not the characteristics of Christians in our day and age. When I look on social media, we are not being obedient. We're not being speaking. Certainly, we see many people speaking evil of others. To, they're quarreling with one another. They're not being gentle. Man, I wasn't going to say this, but I guess I am going to now. It's like the phrase, let's go, Brandon. I think everybody in the room may know what that phrase means. If not, I can help you understand it later. That is a phrase that is not one that should come out of a Christian's mouth. For the purpose of what it's doing is not speaking. It is speaking evil of someone. Scripture is clear that though we may disagree with our authorities and our rulers, there's this balance of living good lives. Why? We're going to see that in just a moment. But the purpose in doing this, I'll just go ahead and say it. The purpose in unfolding these first two things in the areas in which we can, where it's not contrary to the godly life that we are called to live by Scripture, the purpose behind all of it is so that we can be ready to have good works and to proclaim the gospel, not only in our words, but in the way that we live our lives. Certainly that means that often we may need to buck against society or we may need to rebel against our government and do what the gospel is calling us to do. But sometimes, more often than none in our current state, it means to submit to those who are authority over us. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy. But he also uses this phrase towards all people. Now, Obviously, this would fall into the category of Christians as well. But to all people, he goes on in verse 3, he says, For we are self-once foolish, disobedient. So he says, Well we were once. So when he says all people, it doesn't mean all people in the world, right? Because they only have certain people they interacted with. But not only that, but when he uses this phrase, All people, you have to put it in the context of the sentences that are going on around it. And the sentences going on around it is saying that we were once living in. So when he says all people, he's talking about all unbelievers that they interact with. That not only should they submit to their authorities, but they should live with non-believers in a positive way. In a good way. I don't want to beat down this statement, but... I watched a video of a church that, um, it wasn't a church service. It was an extra thing going on in the church building. But I did watch a video of that phrase being chanted in a church service in Texas this past week. And I think that's a shame. But there's also very evil things going on in our society where I see a lot of churches silent on those matters too. And that's a shame too. We have to balance submitting to authorities and living for the gospel in a way that is transformative. But I think what seems to be more applicable to our lives today in this room is how do you live with non-believers? But I don't want to separate them. Because if we live in a society where everyone else is standing up and doing things they should not be doing, even when it relates to submitting to authorities then we as believers have to do what is right, even when no one else is. Mm -hmm. But we also have to do much more than that. We have to be gentle. We have to not be speaking evil. We have to not quarrel with them. We have to show perfect courtesy towards them. First and foremost, what we see this morning is that we're called to submit to authorities and to live with non-believers. But the reason why, the reason why we're called to do these things well is found in 3 through 8. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Why should we live out godly lives and be submitting to authorities and to live around (coughs) non-believers well? Because we were once them, is what he's saying here, that you were once one of them You were someone that was disobedient. You were someone that was led astray. You were someone that was (coughs) a slave to your passions and pleasures. You passed your days with malice and envy. You were hated by and hating others. The reason why we have to do verses 1 through 2 is because we were once this, but... Verse 4. But when... The goodness of loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. He saved us. The reality is the only difference between us and nonbelievers is that we have trusted in Christ. And as we're about to unfold, that was nothing of our own doing, but only of His doing. And so the reason why we live well among nonbelievers is is because God is the only thing that has separated us from them and us. Let's keep going. Not because of this verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. It is not because of works we have done in righteousness, We're not saved by any good that we do. And I would even press it a little bit farther so we understand it rightly. We're not even saved by the good that we would do in Christ. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by the word of God alone, all of those things. But he keeps going. He says, but according to his own mercy, the mercy of God, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is really this complicated word which means to be regenerated, right? But what does that mean? It means to be made into a place in which you can respond to the gospel, that you were taken from evil eyes, blind eyes. This is amazing grace all wrote out in one word, that I was once blind, but now I see. Regeneration is that moment in which God opens our hearts, open our eyes so that we can now see Christ for who he is and renewal of the Holy Spirit, making us new. Um, order salutis. Don't write that down. It's not that important. Order salutis means order of, order of salvation. That's where people separate on when it comes to regeneration, renewal, all of those things. That's where, uh, that's where, in my opinion, that's where the big debate on Calvinistic or Reformed theology meets that of the opposite. It's not on uh, grace alone through faith alone. Everyone would agree with that. It's the reality of what happens first. I would argue here we see that digression here. Washing of regeneration, meaning the ability to respond, and then the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that we respond because God has enabled us to respond to the gospel and enabling us to respond to the gospel. We are made new in Christ, that we freely choose Christ, but we are able to only free choose, freely choose Christ after he has opened our eyes to see him. But I would argue that it's also a, such a moment in our lives it's also very hard to split atoms over this. God does the work of salvation. We trust in him. That's it. All right, let's keep going. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become his heirs according to hope eternal life. I'm going to pause there because verses 4 through 7, is just laying out this step by step of our salvation and why we now live in light and live in light of the gospel to the unbelievers around us. But Paul to make his point even well known, even more known, verse eight, he says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want to you to insist on these things, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent. And profitable for people. When you look at verse 5. It says, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Paul's clear about that. We're called to submit to authorities. We're called to live well with unbelievers. Why? Because we were once one of them. We were saved not by our own works, but the works of God. But he ends in verse 8. By reminding us, he says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for our people. We are now called that as people that have been regenerated, saved, forgiven by Christ Jesus, we're called to now live good works. Why? So that the unbelievers, the authorities in our life, can now come to know Christ as well. It's very circular here. It's very simple. Is that we are to treat these people well. We're supposed to live with them well. We're supposed to submit to them well. Why? So that they can see our good works as a result of God saving us. And in seeing our good works, they can now trust and know of Christ by us not only living out the reality of the gospel, but proclaiming it to them. The application there is very simple. Is when the world around you is doing things. That is contrary to the word of God. Stand out. Land on what God's word lands on. Live the life you are called to live. When people at your job. Aren't giving it all. Because they don't like the authority that is over them. Give it your all. Regardless of who your bosses are. It's also going to call us to stand up for some things that the world says is okay that it's just clearly not. There's a lot of application in here, but it's as simple as this: is you're called to live as a person of good works. Why so that those who do not know Christ can be much like you and come to know Christ in salvation because we were once one of them. So we're called to submit to authorities, to live with non-believers. Why? Because we were once sinners destined to go to hell because of our rejection and rebellion against God. But God, through Christ Jesus, saved us, and now we are called to be people of good works. But 9 through 11, <coughs> he gives this final thing. And I would um, like to just kind of point out, it, it, almost, it almost kind of mimics the way that the end of chapter 1 ends because he's now going back to some of the same issues they were having in the church, okay? So chapter 1, as Troy preached to us, uh, qualifications of elders. But after that, he was addressing the issues they were having in the church of this circumcision party and all these issues that came alongside that. Verse 9, he's now providing Titus this charge to teach to the people around him. And this is a hard, hard, hard charge, okay? This is one that we overlook in the last 60 years in church history. Um, but this is one that I think is crucial. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, decisions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable or worthless. Now, I'm going to pause there. If anyone wants to discuss theology, wants to discuss uh, various views on whatever it may be, I'm always game for that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a good conversation over a cup of coffee or whatever the case may be. He's not talking about having a a God-centered understanding of Scripture that may differ with one another. He's not talking talking about how the world may end or when Jesus comes back, does he come before the tribulation, after the tribulation? He's not talking about how one is saved, how one's not saved. He's not talking about a mutual conversation against or or with two people that are enjoying themselves. He's talking about the controversies that were ripping the churches and crate apart. He says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. None of those things mattered now, because as he already explained, we're saved by faith alone. None of this matters. Avoid these things. Just don't, don't even practice these things. But beyond that, he says, he takes it a step farther. He says, and for the person who stirs up the vision after warning him once and then twice after nothing more to be said, have nothing more to do with him. So he says, look, y'all avoid this altogether. If somebody within the church keeps it up, Yo, yo, as a church, go to him. As elders, go to him. Do address this with him. Give him a warning. Look, stop doing this. All it's doing is calling controversy and division in the church. You need to stop this. I think that's all pulling out that we are people of that have received grace. <clears throat> so we're people that display grace. right? Well, people that receive the grace of God, so we display the grace of God, even when it's controversies that are affecting the church. But there has to be a moment when false teaching is happening in a church that you have to think of the health of the people as a whole, not just showing grace to one person. And so he says, and then twice. So do it a second time. But after that second time, after you've given it, Gave him that second warning, that second grace. Have nothing more to do with him. This mimics what Jesus says in Matthew. If you have a problem with your brother, go to him one-on-one. If that doesn't fix it, take the, him before the elders. If that doesn't fix it, take him before the church. If that doesn't fix it, then what do you do? Well, exactly what he says in verse 11. End <clears> of <throat> 10, verse 11. Having more, nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self condemned. Paul is saying, after you've walked through these steps, if they're not willing, after being taught the truth, to be warned of the truth and warned again of the truth, church discipline is what he's saying. Essentially, you treat that person as an unbeliever. Why? Because he is warped, sinful, and he is self-condemned out of his lack of repentance. Church discipline is a word that kind of gets a bad feeling in our hearts and in our minds. Some of that is by cultural standards because we haven't seen it practiced in Baptist life in years. But the reality here is something that we should be doing as churches. My prayer would be is that we would never have to do a church discipline situation here at Redeemer. Because you don't want that. You don't want to have to look at someone that you've gathered with for a season of their life and say, we just don't think that you are a believer based off the fruits of your life. And because of that, you can come to this church building. Because of that, you can come gather with us, just like anybody else that's an unbeliever that comes into the church. But you're not a member of the church. You can't take communion. We can't give it to you. Why? Because you are acting as an unbeliever. It is a hard thing to do, but what it's talking about here is the unrepentant of their sin. You can't treat them like believers. Meaningful membership is what that would boil down to. And so what he's saying here is he's instructing the people as a whole to not only avoid these things, but as a whole to handle these situations. Certainly in a case like that, elders would step in first, but then eventually it would have to come before the church. Why? Why? Because on the day-to-day life of the church, it's also affecting that. That when you invite this person into their home, you don't act as if they're believers. You treat them as if they're unbelievers. So in all of this, I want us to just kind of end Titus with this simple just idea. In verse, chapter 1, in verse 5, it says, This is why I left you in Crate, so that you might put remain into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We here at Redeemer is we're growing and we're structuring our church. We're trying to do this elder aspect, right? We're appointing elders. We'll uh, eventually appoint more elders, but we're also putting everything in order. So really this book, um, though was not at the forefront of my mind, but I'm glad God is sovereign in doing something that is beyond your pastor, um, in doing this book, God has placed us with this clear instruction of how we ought to do church. And I think it's something that we've already taken into, uh, into influence as we've kind of walked through this. But elder-led congregations that's focused on discipleship and that are trying to live well within the world they are part of. And in doing that, that's the number one way in which we share the gospel and make him known. And as people come to know Christ, we then do the same thing for them. We teach them how to follow Christ, bring them into the church, and disciple them. And so as we end this chapter, we end this book, I just want us to um, just walk away with this simple truth, not only from this morning, but from all of the sermons, is this. Verse 4 of chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out. On us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then jump to verse 14 and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to be unfruitful. I wish I had more information and time to unpack this, but the Christian church lived in a society that about five years after this book was written, a guy, and possibly even in charge at this point, but a guy named Nero would come into church. Leadership. And as he come into leadership, we would see um, Christian families being burned for their, their faith. They may even would put them in the carcasses of animals and then allow lions to tear them open in the Colosseum in front of everybody. And these Christians would have families. They would have children. And then their children would be left at the dump to die or to fend for themselves and maybe make it out of life. And what other Christian families did was they would come around them. They would go pick up kids in these dumps. They would save them because of the willingness of their families for the gospel's sake. Paul would eventually be arrested again, make himself back to Rome, and most likely beheaded due to the orders of Nero. The reality here is this may have been written before the persecution of the church really got off, really difficult. But even before this was written, think of who Paul was. A man known as Saul that went around killing Christians for their faith. They did not live in a Christian society. They lived in a society that saw Christians as atheists because they only believed in one God. They lived in a society that was counter- Scripture that was against Christ. Peter, if I'm not mistaken, even refers to it as the Antichrist. Because they were Antichrist. The reality here is we don't live in a society that was near as bad as it was. But we live in a society that could very well land there at some point or another. And so as we look at this, we look at our church and we look at our lives... The finer question I would have is what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in not only to save you, but to be your way of saving other people around you? Are you trusting in our works to save us? And that's not something I think you're doing practically, but it may be doing experientially. But also, are we trusting in very normal means of evangelism to save our loved folks, our loved ones, and our neighbors and our co workers? Are we trusting, again, just living out the life that God called us to live, to be the way in which God would open up a gospel conversation with those individuals? Or do we think it has to be this big event that unfolds on a somewhat regular basis that we invite them to church or whatever the case may be? The reality here is very simple, and it's this, is that God desires to save lost souls. He desires to use you to do it. And he's calling you to do it by submitting to authorities and living well with unbelievers. Many of us probably, though, have to ask ourselves, when was the last time that we even rubbed elbows with an unbeliever? When was the last time that we had unbelievers in our home? We had unbelievers that we communicated with regularly. See, the church were really good at segmenting from culture. Christian movies, Christian music. I'm not against those things. We have Christian schools, not against that either. We have Christian everything. I mean, YMCA even do their own sports and that's a Christian ran organization. The reality here is so often we segment our lives from non believers that if I asked you um name five people and I would probably fall to this as well, five people that are unbelievers that you want to share the gospel with in this next year, it would probably be hard for you to name those five people. The reality, though, is very simple, and Paul is clear, is to submit to authorities, to live well with others. Why? Because you have been redeemed by Christ. He's calling your good works to be an example of the gospel. So therefore, you avoid controversial arguments. and You trust in Christ. Let's pray.